Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yo, 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 what's going on, beautiful people? You're now locked into another episode of the Dysnomics podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a shout out to the previous week's episode, which was 314, I believe. How is Israel losing the war to Hamas, right? So I broke down the difference between a ground offensive and an aerial offensive, how Israel's aerial bombardment was inhumane, genocidal, how it broke all types of law. I got into details of that. I'm going into details of why it's difficult to win a ground war, especially with Israel's lack of expertise in that field. And we spoke on various topics. When I say we, I mean me speaking to you. Anyway, this week's episode is sticking with the Middle East conflict theme. And this is more on the economic side, right? So you've probably heard a lot of the Houthis, the Houthis this, the Houthis that. All America are starting their coalition to take down the Houthis, Iran this, Hezbollah that. There's a lot, a lot of stuff to look at, right? So we're going to start off with who are the Houthis, right? What do they stand for? And how are they linked to what we're seeing with regards to the Israel Gaza war, how they're impacting the world's economy, and we're also going to talk about Israel, the state of Israel's economy pre-war, and what's going to happen to Israel's economy during and post-war. So it's still the Middle East, it's still geopolitics, but it's also economics. And that is coming up shortly after this small, small break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yo, 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 what's going on, people? You're now locked into Dysunomics, of course. How is the Israel-Palestine conflict ruining the global economy? By now, you know, it's been three months, starting October, October the 7th. By the time you listen to this, it's going to be at earliest Monday, the 8th of January. We've seen three months of war and it's, got, and it's starting to impact the world's economy, right? mainly due to the impact of a rebel group from the north of Yemen called the Houthis. Now, you've probably seen a lot about these Houthis in the news and on social media, and I'm here to give you a bit more understanding to what's going on 
and who these people are. So, but obviously, you got to start off with who the hell are the Houthis, right? The Houthis actually call themselves Ansar Allah, but they're actually more known as the Houthis worldwide. This is due to their founder, Hussein al-Houthi. So they're naturally known as the Houthis. They are Shia Muslims who are a minority in the north of Yemen. The initial purpose of the Houthis was to fight Yemeni dictator Ali Abdullah Salah in the 1990s. Ali Abdullah Salah was eventually overthrown, which was linked to the Arab Spring protests in 2012. I'm not sure if you remember like the Arab Spring protests, a lot of protests, especially in Egypt and other regions. Two years later, 2014, the Houthis then seized the capital of Yemen, Sinai, or Sanaa. To this day, was Deontay Wilder, so a good 10 years later, they still hold the capital. But the Houthis actually aren't recognised by the international community as the legitimate Yemen government. Since 2014, Yemen's actually been under a civil war. The Houthis versus the Yemen internationally recognised government, right? So the Houthis, in the blue corner, you've got the Houthis who get funding and weapons from, you guessed it, Iran. And then the Yemen international recognised government and international coalition, which was led by Saudi Arabia and are backed by, of course, you guessed it, the United States. So it's so interesting where if I hope to get into geopolitics much more on YouTube as well as uh, my podcast over 2024. But the more you go with me on this journey, you're going to learn that although the United States, Russia, China might not be Iran, so many of these big countries might not be involved in direct conflicts, but they do get it cracking via proxies. And the Houthis is a perfect example of of what encapsulates this type of conflict and kind of geopolitical game theory. The Yemeni civil war is a very brutal one, right? According to UN estimates of 2022, the war has killed more than 377,000 people. That is a gigantic number of people. This is mostly due to malnutrition, unsafe water and poor medical services. And this is why what we see in Gaza currently is really, really, really dangerous because we've got, what, over 20,000, maybe up to as much as 29,000 people are dead if you include those under rubble. But what we haven't really got to is the humanitarian crisis, starvation, malnutrition, sickness and illness. This is going to take, God forbid, but if we look at history, tens of thousands of lives. It's it's really tragic. The violence in Yemen has died down as of the ceasefire, which was um, organised by UN in 2022. So as of now... Um, according to analysts, the Houthis control about one third of Yemen ter- Yemen's territory, but that encapsulates seventy percent of the population. So the Houthis are very, very important in the country of Yemen. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Since mid-November, I believe the date is the nineteenth, to be exact, is when the Houthi dominance. And conflict in the Red Sea with commercial ships, as well as US, Britain, so on and so forth, has commenced. Right? 
The Houthis have been firing drones and missiles and sometimes boarding these ships and seizing these vessels, right? The Houthis said they are doing this in solidarity with Palestinians. They're telling certain ships to turn around. If they don't listen, then it's on site. They want to disrupt any ship that is going towards Israel until Israel stops its genocide in Palestine. That is the line of the Houthis. The Houthis... I don't know how to articulate this. They ain't the most politically correct, shall I say, right? Their slogan is, God is great, death to the US, death to Israel, curse the Jews and victory for Islam. Now, clearly anti-Semitic. <laughs> I don't think that's deniable. But you can understand their disdain for the United States and their disdain for the actions of the Israeli government. But... <laughs> Them and I'm mad. <laughs> anyway, since October, the Houthis actually have been regularly firing missiles and drones at Israel, even though Israel is about a thousand miles away from Yemen. The Houthis previously had attacked targets in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates with missiles, but the launch against Israel, they've actually all been intercepted so far by either U by either US naval ships in the Red Sea or Israel's um, sophisticated missile defence system. These are by far their longest range of strikes so far. So, back to November 19th. A, a helicopter born with Houthi rebels boarded and seized the Galaxy Leader. This is a cargo ship partially owned by an Israeli businessman. This ship is still being held off the coast of Yemen. Its crew are held hostage and are allowed only modest control with outside, modest contact sorry, with the outside world. Since there, there have been attacks of various degrees against at least 12 different commercial vessels, most of them with little or no direct co um, contact with Gulfshire connection of Israel. The United States did fire at a bunch of small Houthi ships a week or two ago, killing all members on board, which obviously is going to lead to a certain level of escalation. So, what has been the economic impact of the Houthis' activity in the Red Sea. Well, the, the response so far is that, boy, the world's largest containment ship companies have literally stopped shipping through the Red Sea fam. So you've got Denmark's Mars Maresks, Germany's Hapag Lloyd, China's Costco. These companies are like, nah fam, we don't want none of that smoke. We're not risking our crews. We're not risking the merchandise. This is all on. If we look at BP British Petroleum, they also want no smoke. And with this, 7 million barrels of oil, which normally travels through the Red Sea per day, is now severely impacted. The Israeli war in Gaza has, is causing shockwaves throughout the region and, of course, naturally throughout the world. So what's happening during the, in the region? You've got... The assassination attempt in Beirut in Lebanon, which has led to escalation from Hezbollah, which targeted one of what Israel's main hub when it comes to like surveillance, right? You've also got the terrorist attack in Iran, and now you've got the Houthis getting it cracking in the Red Sea. The rerouting of these ships away from the Red Sea is adding thousands of miles and is adding days of travel time. This has costed companies millions in extra fuel and other costs. 
US, French and British ships in the region have been shooting down dozens of Houthi drones because it's really impacting trade. If you look at the numbers, 12% of global trade and 10% of maritime, maritime oil trade passes through the Red Sea, according to Politico. And with what's happening, it's severely, severely, severely pissing off the, West, West, the Western world and their economies. The Red Sea has two choke points, yeah, and this is where the seas get narrow. In the north, we've got the Egypt Suez Canal. In the south, you've got... Sorry. In the south, you've also got Bab al-Mandab, also known as the Gate of Tears, which is a strait between Yemen and Djibouti, which is about 20 miles wide at its most narrowest point. And naturally, at its most narrowest point is where the Houthis' attacks are taking place. This kind of reminds me of what happened in 2021. Remember, remember when there was the issue of the Suez Canal, where the Ever Given ship was blocking traffic for literally a week, which is costing the world economy loads and loads of cash. So who is this impacting? Obviously Egypt. Egyptian government are currently cash strapped. But, and they earn $9 billion a year simply from Suez Canal transit fees. And if ships ain't transitioning through the Suez Canal, they ain't eating. European, European countries are impacted, which means European consumers are going to be impacted. How is this? Well, European economies have become more reliant on shipborne oil and natural gas from the Middle East. This is because ever since the war in Ukraine with Russia, after Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, European countries have started to wean themselves off Russian resources to become more independent of Russian resources who are effectively an opiana. What's interesting is that obviously oil, we saw oil was super high and it starts to come down. Oil has been dropping, oil prices have been dropping in the last two months mainly due to Chinese demand dropping, which kind of pushes the, the price for oil down. But it started to take jumps recently. European national gas prices jumped 7% after BP decided to suspend Red Sea shipments of liquefied natural gas. These prices will eventually, if this continues, these prices will be passed on to consumers and will be more expensive for us to have oil and gas. And this crisis couldn't come at a worse time for the global shipping industry, which is actually currently in a slump as global industries output flatlines and obviously post-pandemic consumer demand normalises, right? So until the demands of consumers before coronavirus, like this is basically how much we wanted goods and services, until we reached that normal level, the global economy is kind of in a slump and this doesn't help anything whatsoever. Another impact is that the war risk premiums charged by insurance companies. Because of this, because of this, the cost of shipping in the Red Sea has jumped dramatically. So the cost of shipping has jumped, I, I think I saw on Politico, by 170%. You don't like that. <laughs> and if you look at the cost of insurance in terms of the value for a ship, this jumped from 0.5%. 0.7 of a ship's value in early December to around 0.5%. So a jump from 0.07 to 0.5. So that's a jump of 0.43%. And when you think about it, a sh an oil, if you look at oil tankers, 
that can be valued at hundreds of millions of dollars. So these premiums can make Reggie shipping ridiculously expensive if they continue to rise further, which of course pushes up price. Bloomberg um, reported in the back end of December that after the coalition announced, and this is when America tried to get groups of countries to come together in the Red Sea to kind of patrol and make sure commercial ships are safe and kind of combat the Houthis. Shipping traffic was actually down 40% in the Bab al-Madab Strait. This is at the southern choke point of the Red Sea. Both that waterway and the Suez Canal are critical to international trade, and not just the oil and energy products that come from the Middle East, but also container ships carrying consumer goods as well as machinery and part and parts that are necessary for manufacturing. So the Houthis are really, really, really effing up the global economy right now. And this is just the, this is just like the first what two months roughly of this. Only God knows how long, how long this is going to last, and only God knows where this level of escalation can go if the US and friends keep getting it cracking with the Houthis. Now, we've discussed the impact on the global economy with regards to the Houthis' activity, military activity, or should I say naval military activity in the Red Sea. How about the impact on Israel's economy? We're going to get into that after this short break. How is the war in Gaza impacting Israel's economy? Now, to correctly look at this, we've got to look at what Israel's economy was like pre-October the 7th. Previous Israeli wars haven't, haven't had significant impact on the economy, mainly because the wars have been kind of like quick things, like just quick little dust-ups. So if you look at the 1967 Arab war, Israel-Arab war, that was six days. Whereas this current war has gone on for, what, three months and counting. And Benjamin Netanyahu have spoken that this war is going to go on for several more months. Israel's economy was in very good shape. Well, let me not say very good. It was in good shape at the start of the war. If you look at their growth since 2000, which is a good quarter century almost, they have averaged 3.9% annual growth across that time period, which is solid. The International Monetary Fund, IMF, forecast their growth to be 3.6% by 2026. Again, solid. Israel have one of the highest per capita income in the Middle East. And remember, in the Middle East, you've got UAE as well as um, Qatar, who have notoriously high um, per capita incomes. Israelis' per capita income is on par with Spain and Italy. These are big nations in Europe, right? Israel has a current budget and current account surplus. What does this mean? A budget surplus means that Israel actually receives more in taxation than they actually spend, right? So that's like our government spending less money than the money that they get in from income tax, corporation tax, VAT, so on and so forth. A current account surplus is in economics, you look at how much money does the, does the country make from its exports Minus the amount of money the country spends on its imports, right? So if you have a surplus, that means you are exporting more stuff than you're importing, right? So that means that's very good. That means you're an exporting country. The UK is in a current account current account deficit. We import more than we export. 
So Israel's in got strength in the, in fiscally. They make they make more money than they spend. Pretty much, that's an easy way of looking at it. Cool. Anyway, moving on. The Bank of Israel also has two hundred billion dollars worth of foreign exchange reserves, which is equivalent of a year's worth of imports. So they've got like a nice buffer there. If you look at the Israeli economy, it's very diversified. They've got quite a lot of startups. They invest heavily in education and they spend more of their, of their gross domestic product on civilian research and development than any other country. So that mean, what does that mean? They basically put more resources, proportion-wise, than any other country into civilian research and development. They have a very highly skilled workforce which, which enables them to attract a lot of foreign direct investment in sectors such as IT and pharmaceuticals. It is pretty much the Middle East's tech hub. Hence why you see countries like Saudi Arabia and especially UAE look to gain closer ties because they stand a lot to gain economically. And of course, Israel's ops are Iran. Saudi Arabia's ops are Iran. You know what they say? enemy of an enemy oh no i butched that it's meant to be a friend of an enemy <laughs> it's a friend of mine or some shit wait wait ignore that but you you get the general gist <laughs> i'm not very good at these these um these sayings these instagram quotes however under benjamin netanyahu who tried this crazy judicial reforms which have now been shut down by this the israeli supreme court which also led to mass protest the judicial overhaul had incurred economic costs credit agencies yes countries do have credit ratings just like you do in your businesses express concerns saying judicial reforms would further undermine israel's weak institutional rating foreign investors were also concerned about the nation's prospects and the delay and they started to delay their investments um in southern israel who where the border with gaza is and in northern israel where the border with lebanon is lebanon is We've seen immense evacuations due to a consistent missile fire from Hamas in the south and Hezbollah in the north. This has led to closure of schools and non-essential shops, which started to open slowly but surely. Also, another impact of the war is that the fighting has forced Israel to utilise their reservists. Israel had 360,000 reservists, which makes up about 8% of the country's labour force. And only God knows how long these reservists will be required. So that's taking people out of the labour force, which is taking people out of producing goods and services for the economy, which of course leads to a fall in your gross domestic product, your, your country's output. Israel's also barred 110,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and 18,500 Palestinians from Gaza who currently have work permits from crossing the border. They cite security reasons, right? But this is almost 130,000 people that could be working, could be producing in your country that are not. You add that to the 360,000 um, reservists, that's damn near half a million people in the workforce that are literally gone just like that. Even something like the tyre workers, right? Prior to October 7th, there was like a decent amount of tyre workers. Um, dozens were taken hostage. Some were killed um, on October 7th. And what happened then? Nearly all of the remaining tire workers, they cut. <laughs> Naturally. What are we doing here, bro? It's not safe for us here. Let's get the heck out of here. 
And it's not just the tight workers. Many foreign workers have also left the country. And we don't know when they will return. Or if they will return. We've seen that with Brexit. Loads of people left after Brexit. Loads of people left... No, not Brexit. The pandemic. We saw loads of people left after the pandemic. How many people are going to return? These shortages will impact nearly all the main sectors in Israel. Especially agriculture. Especially in the south. There's been severe crop losses due to 40,000 Palestinian and foreign workers leaving the region. Israel's high-tech industry accounts about for about 40% of jobs, 14% of jobs, and almost one-fifth of its GDP. They have a high amount of young male workers, naturally, in that region. In, no, sorry, in that industry, you're going to see a lot of young males working there. And obviously, a disproportionate amount of them have been called up to serve duty. If you take company Magic Software, they reported 14% of its employees have been currently serving in the army. If you have 1,000 staff members, that's what, that's 140 staff members. God, just like that. There was already indications that many high-tech companies and educated employees were re relocated away from Israel, according to reports. But naturally, a war in the region is going to further accentuate that, which is going to make it harder for the economy. A drop in Israel's most productive industry could have big impact on the economy, and I think we're going to start to see that in the coming months. Luckily for Israel, they had strong macroeconomic fundamentals, which I mentioned at the top of the, uh, the top of the segment, and they have a strong fiscal situation. They have a current account surplus. They get more exports. They sell. They move more exports than they demand imports. They bring in more tax dollars, or should I say, more tax money than they spend. This enabled them to increase their spending to stabilize the economy in the beginning of the war. However, the longer this goes on, it's going to get very, very bad for the economy. The direct cost of the war is currently 246 million per day, a quarter million a day. And if the fighting is limited to Gaza and it's one year, and it goes from one year, and 150,000 reservists demobilized soon, the war could cost them $51 billion. That doesn't include if the war spreads to Lebanon with Hezbollah. So, their economy is going to start to suffer. And, boy, only God knows how we're going to be impacted. It's not looking good for us, in my opinion. Especially if this conflict continues to spread... And then you get Iran and their proxies, Hezbollah involved. This is going to drive up oil prices and gas prices, in my opinion. And obviously, that's not good for us. We saw what happened in 2022 and 2023 with, in terms of a cost of living crisis. So this war, obviously, is mainly not good for the people involved, the innocent lives. And of course, it's not good for the economy. So yeah, we'll see if the world can actually quash this but it's not looking good breath so yeah man that's it for this week's pod or should i say this weekend's pod i'll be back on thursday with another pod so until then tell a friend to tell a friend peace sports social podcast network